Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. Good morning. Uh, this is Greg Hutchins. <laughs> hey, Greg. Hey, sorry to interrupt you there, but we were, you know, kind of chatting about the different things we're working on and, and how to get into this topic. And uh, and we sent you, Greg, I sent you a couple days ago, the, uh, early, the, what we think is close to our final, final draft, although who knows if it'll ever be done. <laughs> and you picked up on that there's a lot of um, decision-making in there is, is a good focus on that. And, and which I think is, I don't know, we still haven't sorted a title yet. So that might be a, another decision we got coming up, but there's a lot of stuff to this. And so one of the things that um, it, we were just starting the chat and I said, Oh, wait, 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 we got to hit record, but just a quick summary of, and to catch our, our listeners up is in one of the chapters, Carl and I are going through our, our draft and going, you know, there's something missing here. The output is supposed to be a list of barriers or gaps, as we call them, uh, to achieve your objectives, your reliability objectives. And we ended the chapter basically saying, oh, here's what your current state is on the reliability maturity matrix. And, and so use the assessment, use all these insights and information you gather to figure out where you are. And, and then we went off and forgot to add, well, what are the barriers? What are the gaps? What's the, what, what did you learn about the difference between where you are and where you want to be? And, after a very short discussion, or longer than we both thought it would be, but we realized that we, Carl and I approached this process of setting up what is it we need to focus on for a reliability improvement plan of some sort or, or project plan, is that when I approached the organization, I would go figure out what their current state is. Where are they now? How do they make decisions now? What influences them? What information and resources do they have? What are the, where, and then, then I look at, well, what are you trying to achieve? What's the goal? And then we go sort out in, in later chapters than in the book, then we sort out, well, what do you do with that information and move it forward? Whereas Carl approaches it, um, from start with the end in mind, he's fond of quoting uh, uh, Covey on that. And so he says, you know, well, what's your objectives? What are you trying to achieve? Okay, let's do the assessment. And he gets both the current state and because he knows is they had the discussion of what they're trying to achieve, then the barriers or the gaps become visible. And so we do the same things, but in different order. And, but it's it's funny that we both end up in the same place, by and large. And, and so it was, but you're picking up on the decision part of it was interesting, but I think there's this more nuanced part. Well, is there a better way or is there a best way to go about doing it um, to, to figure out what are the major decisions or what are the major actions that you need to take um, in order to achieve your objectives? Wow. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. So, yeah, I'm in the same bucket as you and Carl. Writing a book, 
a practical book on decision making. And essentially, I wrote the book, oh, January through March, maybe April this year, and basically focused on the decision making point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at it both ways, basically starting from the beginning, you know, where you are now. And I also looked at it from Covey's point of view, look, <laughs> look at it from your objective right. or your goal or your outcome, and then working backwards. So I incorporated both of those. But the part that really struck me probably around March uh, was putting this into context. Once somebody said uh, to me that context is worth 20 IQ points, and I had the technical part done, meaning the 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 just you know looking at the objective and figuring out what are the obstacles in the way mm-hmm. didn't have the bigger issue and to me the bigger issue is are people happy and when I started thinking about that I said okay why aren't they and obviously uh, a lot of people are stuck and to me stuckiness if there's such a word is really a function of not getting stuff done. Well, I, well, I, I think that's a piece of it. But is this related to the great resignation that's been going on the last year or so? I think it's the great resignation. I think there's a whole bunch of books coming out right now. And I saw that at, at Barnes & Noble mm-hmm. as to why people aren't happy. It's a global phenomenon. And to me, the premise is people are not getting their stuff done. Well, their stuff done mean not what their task is on their desk. I, I think there's some of that that also having too many tasks leading to burnout and that makes it worse. But there's also, you know, I, I just heard a report yesterday here in the Bay, San Francisco Bay area that one of the local uh, towns here is the worst place uh, for cost of living or for buying a house. I think it was, there was almost nothing on the market. Everything was way overpriced. You know, interest rates are higher. Cost of living is higher. It went on and on and on, which was basically a bumper sticker. So if you're ever thinking about making the decision, going back to our topic of moving to California, don't, the weather sucks. It's too much traffic. You don't want to come here. So I'll help you with that decision. But yeah, it was, part of it was, is just that, People are looking at, is this all I want? Is this all I, is this my life? <laughs> you know, am I done now? Or what do I do to achieve? In a, I, I look at it that way. When you say people aren't happy, it's like, well, the American dream is getting out of reach, especially in, in these neighborhoods where I live. Well, the American dream is basically forcing people to make a decision. Are you stuck? And if you are stuck... How do you get out of that? Yeah. And part of it, I think, is decision making. Well, is it the right dream, though? I think that, I think we've been inoculated with that since the fifties, right? Uh, and maybe even prior is that you get a house and you have a car and two kids and live in the suburbs, kind of to, to make it very simplistic. But it goes back to decision making. Is that the goal? Well, and it really comes down to if you're stuck, and a lot of folks are. So I, to me, I equate unhappiness with being stuck. Okay. And the way out of that is, I think, really two things. How are you thinking about things, and how are you going to decide to decide? Okay. <laughs> I don't want to be too philosophical about that, but yeah, yeah. Um, basically decision-making is you are how you think, and then the other piece is you are how you decide. And that's the stuff that I added to the book. Okay. Now, in 
uh, everything you're talking about relates to what I deal with in the reliability decision-making side. But you're looking at it from the decision-maker's point of view, where Carl and I are looking at it from a reliability engineering point of view, where we're providing information to decision-makers. Mm-hmm. Now, if the goal is not the American dream, but to make a, make a successful project product and get it on the market that has an acceptable or low failure rate and gets great customer appreciation, all the other good stuff that comes with a good, reliable, functioning product. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of decisions that get made along that process. And one of them is, you know, is it ready to ship? Are we, is whoever that manager is, if she says, yep, we're ready to ship and she's wrong, right? Well, get your resume out (laughs) or, or it's, but it's, it's a daunting decision for any product because you'd never know. And part of what many of the functions in an organization do is, are we ready? Is marketing ready? Is the market uh, understanding of the market's need ready? Is the manufacturing and supply chains, are they ready? And is the design ready? And so reliability doesn't impact all of those things, but we certainly can contribute to many of them. And so... I've always looked at it as is that we're looking at this project manager who's got to make a decision or senior manager that's got to decide, yep, ship it or not ship it, uh, among many, many other decisions, is what is it that helps them make a better decision? And the first step is, well, what decisions are you trying to make? You know, ship or no ship is is a decision, uh, but there's many others. So understanding what are those key things and then what information is necessary so that it's informed correctly or properly for for that person. I mean, I could give you a, a reliability prediction or an accelerated test result, but that might not be what's needed in order to make a good decision. And I think the understanding the decision maker from what you're talking about, Greg, is one part of it. And it's not just the technical stuff. It's it's also the soft stuff. Is this in a way that they can understand and digest? Is it familiar to them so that they can incorporate it into their mindset of how this information is relevant and all those kinds of things? Um, and if they're not happy and stuck, it's what is it that needs to change? Is it understanding the goal? What are we trying to achieve or in its impact range of risks of say, if the failure rate's too high or too low, what do we need to do? Or is it something else that uh, we used to ask the question all the time? And I think this is relevant. What you're talking about is, you know, what keeps you up at night? That's what we're, that poses the question. And basically that poses what, what are the risks but it really doesn't pose the real question, which I think is, if you are what, if you are how you think and you are how you decide, what's the process of deciding how you decide? <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, um, well, I'm thinking of. I'm see, I'm very practical. I get out a sheet of paper and make a matrix, and what are the factors, and what do I know about each one of them, and how do they influence which way you should go? And then I throw that away and, and make a decision. <laughs> It's like, I don't know. I haven't thought about it hard enough to think about how I decide. Well, I think at the end of the day, that's really the quality of maybe managers. That's the quality of the quality of the decision making is really, I think, the quality of the organization. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I'm positing a pretty big uh, assumption. Well, there's there's been articles in Harvard Business Review and other places about, you know, decision isn't just lining up the facts as doing this plus minus type matrix kind of thing with available factors and, and weighting the factors and all that stuff. That's piece of it. But there's also an emotional piece of it. You know, which of your advisors do you trust? You know, and more of on an intuitive level, not like you're keeping track of their track record, but which ones, uh, yeah, I think trust is the right word, but it's, it's what's your gut say? I think lots of decision-making is, is a bit of both. And so understanding that just the, the Weibel plot is not enough. It's got to have a story. And what is this, this information? How does it, how did it come about and what's its impact? Um, if it doesn't have that story, then it's just a, a graphic. There's nothing, nothing there. And the story essentially is deciding how to decide. Well, were, yeah, yeah, I agree. Because, you know, even something as simple as who do you trust is really a decision. Uh, how do you ensure that you can trust them? All those are coming down to decision making. And again, whether the decision is heart-based, gut-based, or head-based, uh, it really comes down to the style, the process of deciding how to decide. And I don't think most of us have really a good mechanism for that. No, and there's, I mean, I've seen different decision makers over my years, and, and some are come in, they have a preconceived idea where they want to go. And then they have their staff or a meeting to to challenge their bias. And they purposely ask people, say, what's wrong with this? I want to go this way. What could go wrong? And and then they, um, it's like a legal case, you know, here's, we're going to, we're going to uh, presume innocence. We're going to presume that this is the right course of action. What am I missing? What What's wrong with this? You know, make your case. And there's other people that are, well, I'm going to gather as much information as I can until I have to make a decision for the deadline or for for the act, activities to take transpire and stuff. And then I, there's a corollary to that when I worked for one person that would gather information ad nauseum and, and never actually make a decision. That was the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> that that bias you mentioned is called the confirmation bias. Well, yeah, but it's also some that I the person recognizes is you know I've got a strong feeling that this is the way we should go, or I think this is the right course of action. But then they would step back and say, "Why is this right? Why is this wrong? What what could go wrong? What's the what? What am I missing?" They mm -hmm. purposely asked other people to challenge them, and it was a confrontational meeting, but it was perfectly fun. Um, <laughs> it was stressful because you know, you're arguing with your boss, this boss kind of person, but you're, they, they recognize that, you know, I've got a bias and if you all sat in here and told me exactly why this is the right idea, I'd fire y'all because you're a bunch of yes men kind of stuff. <laughs> yes people, I should say. And, but I think that was brilliant that they said, you know, I want to have a good, hard discussion on this. And I don't want to dance around it. And I don't want to tell you what the answer is and you tell me, but I want you to tell me why it's wrong. And, and then made it happen and made it safe to do that. Um, which takes some getting used to. 
because there's other people that say, this is what we're going to do. They're, they decide that they're the leader and they have to make firm decisions, even on scant data, because they'll never have the right information, all the information. And, and then they make horrible mistakes, but nobody's willing to tell them this is coming at them <laughs> or this is, this is a something to consider, <laughs> you know? Not unless you want to keep your job. Well, yeah, it depends on the organization. But I think that deciding how to decide is a cultural thing. Is what is it that is um, acceptable and expected as part of the discussion, part of the information gathering, part of the how do you convey risk and so on? You know, if everybody that says, oh, this isn't going to work, this part melts at room temperature, <laughs> you know, um, then you get shot because you're the bad messenger. Well, that's not conducive to actually getting a good information for your decisions. So that's cultural, I think is what you were getting at a moment ago. I think it's cultural. The, the deciding how to decide, I think, is really the core issue here uh, because it really comes down to, at the end, what's your objective and what's your risk appetite? Both you and Carl starting, I mean, you start from the, from the is state, Carl uh, starts from the to be state, mm -hmm. and you know you work forward, he works backwards. Essentially, that's the same thing. Yeah. Um, the essence, though, is what are you going? You know, at a certain point, you're going to have to make a decision. The decision is going to be based on risk appetite. You know, and you know, uh, are the unknowns or the unknowables acceptable to you? Uh, if they are, or if they're if they're not, you don't make it. You know, you don't go forward. Well, you decide to get more information, or, or decide to do something different, more cautious. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I don't. I the feeling I have, and I see that almost daily, organizations and people don't have really a mechanism to make decisions, whether they're reliability, quality, uh, technical. You know, and I think the quality of the organizations really comes down to decision-making. Well, you know, it, it gives me an example. Early on in my career, I was working with a team that was going to use a new component. It was a new way of attaching uh, components to, to solder, solder it to circuit boards. It was a different mm -hmm. style that they hadn't used before in mass production. Mm -hmm. And so the team decided we're going to make two circuit boards, one with the, the traditional way of attachment that we know and love. It's got some other challenges because we got it. It's, it's going to be pretty dense. It takes up more space. It does all this other stuff. It wasn't a slam dunk that that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the new attachment offered a lot of nice benefits if it worked. And so at that point they said, we're going to be cautious. We're going to create two paths so that we don't get caught short and we can, because time to market was critical. So they mm -hmm. started two different designs that, I mean, same functionality, different way of attaching this IC to it. And, and they said, we need more information. Will this solder joint last long enough for our application? And that was when I got asked to do an accelerated life test. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the decision was, are we going to do this circuit board or that circuit board? You know, which of these two designs? And they each had pros and cons. And I sat down with the program manager and says, what do you need to know? I says, I just need to be convinced that it will last 10 years in our system. Okay. <laughs> and you don't have 10 years, right? And he goes, no. 
<laughs> we got four months. <laughs> you know, all right. I know a little bit about accelerated testing because that's why we asked you. And so we went off and ran this test. And it was funny is that I had all the data. I had the Weibull plots. I had laid out all of my assumptions. I had like a 20-minute presentation to the staff to say, here's the test results. Here's how to interpret it. Here's We have a a finite low probability that it will cause, we'll have some failures out to whatever the time frame was we're interested in, but it's going to meet our objectives of being a solid solder joint. And so I have all these test boards and I mean, they were circulating around the room and one of the production managers got his keys out and was trying to pry the component off the board. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sticking the key underneath the edge of it and trying to break it off. And I'm like, and, and I saw him doing that, and he was getting a lot of attention because he's making all this noise, but he couldn't get the component to come off. Now, if you do that with a lot of different components, it'll just come right off. But this one was stuck on really well. So I walked over, and, I, and it, was a, it was a ball grid array uh, type solder joint, for those that are familiar with these joints. And all I did was I took the circuit board and flexed it. I, I twisted it. I grabbed both ends of it and put... F- rotational force in two directions on it so that it would twist. And I went crack, crack, and just picked the component right off. He says, if you want to see under it, just do this. <laughs> and at that point, and I didn't say anything. I, I mean, I just kind of did it is because he was being distracted, distra- distracting the meeting. And I went over and did this and handed it to him. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess it's pretty solid. And once he said that, everybody else was good. Is like, which had nothing to do with this long term life, right? It was, it sticks on there really well. And he was happy with that. And so at that point, he sat back, yeah, I guess that works. I think he was partly embarrassed too. But the rest of the team immediately went, okay, this worked. Meeting's over. We're done. Use this part. And, and it was funny how that transpired. They had all this technical data, but then they saw this one little event where this one guy couldn't get the component off the board if he, when he was trying which would work with every other component. So I don't know how to in, interpret that into a, a decision-making process, but if you can pull off a cool event in the middle of the meeting, then it, it might help. So can I sort of distill what you just said? Sure. So first of all, you're right. You came up with a really compelling story now. It was interesting. It was technical. It was decision-making. It was really great. But essentially, the compelling story fed into really deciding how to decide. And then the third thing is, uh, and again, this is part of my book, is you are how you decide. Yeah, and I translate that the product is is how you decide. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, <laughs> good, sum- good summary. Yeah, I'm just thinking there's probably 57 other things here that go into it because there's – well, anyway, if you, I mean, if, you know, if you're listening to this and going, what in the world are you guys talking about? And this is a big piece of what we do is informed decision makers is in reliability and quality in other organizations, whether it's a customer saying, is this product reliable enough? Will it work long enough? Will I get my money back for using it? Will I have to repair it? I don't know. So it's important. And there's a lot of moving pieces into it. I think we just barely scratched the surface here, Greg. So let's um, 
open it up. Let If you've got a question on this or an idea or have you seen some good examples, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S-O-R. And you can leave us a comment or uh, a voicemail there. You can find Greg and I on LinkedIn and other and on our about pages, our contact information. And we'd love hearing from you. We get questions, not every day, but almost every, or it's certainly every week. And so we we um, get you an answer as soon as we can. And many of those end up being topics for our our podcast. So we really enjoy hearing from you both to help you improve what you're doing if we can and to have something to talk about on the show. So we certainly appreciate it. So with that, Greg, I think it's time to decide to say uh, we're going to wrap this one up. Thanks, Brett. I enjoyed it. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic, that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.